Welcome to Mediation Station. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. You can also visit YouTube at both CHHA 1610am and also at Greg Fenton to see some videos of Mediation Station. Also listen to podcasts of each radio show at both soundcloud.com and pcrtoronto.org. Our topic tonight is called Gender Identity, Attitude and Legal Representation with visitor Dumo Ziba in the studio with me tonight. Hi Dumo, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you doing, Greg? I'm fine. I'm okay. Appreciate you being here. How about you share some uh, information about your professional background? Okay, so firstly, uh, Greg, again, it's a um, thank you so much for allowing me to come here today. And I think just uh, s- since we met and you introduced me to the mediation station, I have been listening to your station and have enjoyed the depth of topics that are addressed here. So I really appreciate the opportunity of coming here this evening and talking to you and to your listeners. I'm happy to be a part of the discourse. Uh, to your question regarding my my background, I am a lawyer in Toronto, and I practice mainly in uh, family law and uh, immigration law. On the family law side, I, re- I represent clients in all aspects of family law. This includes custody, access, and property-related issues. I also represent clients uh, in the GTA in regards to child protection issues. This is where the children's aid societies are involved with uh, families. I also do some uh, immigration work, and from an immigration uh, perspective, I represent clients in their permanent resident applications, visa applications, and uh, study permits. Okay, so it's a, it's a range. It's working with people who are experiencing another form of conflict. That's correct. And trying to get some kind of uh, clarity in terms of their situation. Yeah. So what brought you to gravitate to being a lawyer? Well, because I enjoy working with people. I think uh, the decision I, this was a decision I made earlier on in my um, in my studies, I came to this position where I said, whatever I do in my life, I just want to make sure that I'm able to help people. I want to be able to go home and say I made an impact in someone else's life. And I think the practice of law allows me to do that because I interact with people, people who are in conflict on a regular basis, and I feel like I'm able to help them. Why, though, family or and or immigration and not uh, civil, for example? Well, I think I, I've always been passionate about family law. And it's one of those areas of law where, you know, for instance, I, I do a lot of uh, child protection work. So in essence, you're dealing with very vulnerable people who are working against the society. So I, I think it was just a personal choice, and that's an area of law that I've always been passionate about. So with child protection, that's where one of the – there's four in Toronto that I understand, exactly. Children's Aid Societies, the Toronto one, the Catholic one, the Native one, and the Jewish one. That's correct. And they've felt for some reason, whether they got a complaint or was brought to their attention, that there's some concern with the parenting skills with regard to individuals. Yep. And they get involved. Sometimes they apprehend the child or they just open up an investigation and they explore and then they may close it. So you represent what are called what the respondents? That's correct. So I'll be representing the parents. 
And usually the parents would call me once the society takes them to court. And on occasion, I do get clients who have initial um, contact with the society. So the society becomes aware of all these protection concerns and contacts the parents. And I think from the get-go, it's all about conflict resolution at that stage. So when clients contact my office prior to the cases going to the court, we're able to sit down and really understand what the society's concerns are. And I think once you understand them from the get-go, you're you're able to address them and probably avoid going to court, which is a worst-case scenario for most parents. Right. Do you find you deal also with domestic family law? That's correct. Where that's the non-child protection or the adoption stuff. That's correct. So when people have issues with each other about uh, child support, custody, access, etc., you'll help represent one side or the other. That's correct. Do you find there's a difference in terms of the uh, clientele or the people that you represent in the domestic relative to the uh, child protection? Well, I don't want to to generalize, but one thing that I have noticed, and this is just based from my own uh, experiences within Mm -hmm. the legal system, um, I I do find that uh, from a child protection perspective, there tends to be a certain people uh, or clientele that's affected by these issues, and it usually has to do with uh, systemic issues such as poverty. So I do find that in most cases when I'm dealing with child protection issues, I'm dealing with people who, you know, uh, are not necessarily in the best situation, and uh, in most cases there's, there's poverty, there's mental health issues, there's also um, uh, protection concerns. In right, yeah. I would think, too, that with domestic, people have the option to go into court, mm-hmm. whereas when they're a respondent as the, in child protection, they don't have the option. Somebody has already started that. That's this, one of the societies. That's correct. And again, Greg, I think that's that's usually in the worst case uh, s- scenario. So I always tell my clients from the get-go, you know, once a person is able to appreciate what the society's concerns are, because in most cases the the, the children's aid societies tr- they have a mandate under the uh, Child and Family Services Act to work with the families. So once an issue is identified, a protection concern is identified, they try and work with them. So in most cases, if you're able to identify these issues, you can even avoid going to court. Yeah, and, and you know, that's what we here on this program really try to promote mm-hmm. and uh, inform people that they have options. And the more, greater power is when people can work together with each other directly to create the outcomes that are more conducive to their own situations and lifestyles. Mm-hmm. When you give ownership up and you end up going into the justice system, a third party is there, anointed in some form, to impose a decision on people. That's correct. That's correct. So what does it mean to you to be a lawyer? Well, at its basic, being a lawyer, in my opinion, involves, um, I think there are two aspects to it. A lawyer should be understood as someone who advises clients in respect to legal issues and Tied in with that is the issue is uh, a lawyer being understood as an advocate. So lawyers, in essence, are advisors and advocates. So a lawyer goes out there, gives clients advice, and also advocates for them in in uh, appropriate situations. And I'll take it a step further, Greg, and say that I think that the mit- a common misconception, if there is to be one, mm-hmm. is that people just assume that lawyers are supposed to be advocates, right? So I have a legal problem. I retain a lawyer, and they're able to solve my problems, right? And I think my approach is, I think, the the most important thing, or to the minimum, a lawyer should be understood as an advisor. So in most cases, when clients contact lawyers, you know, 
they have they have to know right from the get go whether or not they have a good case. And that's where the whole advising and advocating whether or not the lawyer should actually be taking this to court. So what would be the distinction with advising and advocating? Well, advising entails basically outlining all the options or positions that are available to the client. So you've got a legal problem. What does the law say? And this is usually what most clients want to find out. Should I be paying this lawyer X amount of money, Mm -hmm. right? And taking this to court, if it's actually a, a loser case, it's not going to be successful ultimately. So the lawyer advises, and an informed client is able to instruct counsel. And this is when the ad, a lawyer as an advocate comes into play. So at that stage, a decision is made by the client to, you know what, I understand the options that are available to myself, and I want, I now want to go into the legal process. The thing that a lot of people that I find, from my experience working with the court, you know, within the system, is that a lot of people give ownership to the to the lawyer in terms of what they want, what they are looking for. People see the lawyer as the boss, per se. Let's put it in a simplified form. Boss and person who makes, the one who makes the decisions uh-huh. as to how the process. So a lot of people give that up and say, oh, can I do that? Am I allowed to do that? Can I say that? And people don't realize that they have ownership of the ability to make their own decisions. The reason for a lawyer, I would think, is that they know the system, they know the laws, and they know how to support and navigate through that system or advocate for the client in terms of what they want. That's uh, exactly, that's correct. So my approach to the practice of law, if I may, Greg, is I, I believe in this collaborative lawyering, so to say. So you work with your clients in, mm-hmm. in a partnership. Right. So ultimately it's a partnership. The, cli- the lawyer's job being to provide legal advice, inform the client of all uh, the options that are available to them. And the client makes the decision at the end of the day. And uh, through this partnership, the client is able to instruct the, the lawyer. And ultimately, the buck stops with the client. So the client instructs the lawyer and not the other way around. Right, which is the paradigm that people actually see the lawyer telling the client what they should be doing. You present information, options, exactly. and then people exactly. being better informed and a good lawyer would obviously, you know, I would like to think would inform their client that, you know, ultimately I work for you and not the other way around. What does it mean to you as to how you're identified or seen by others? Well, from a personal level, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and as my in my role as a lawyer. And people's views about me, I would like to think, don't affect me. No, frankly speaking, and to be honest, I, I could care less about what people think about me on an individual basis. Now, that being said, I recall when I was in law school, uh, one of my mentors, I used to work at the Pactel Community Legal Services, which is the legal clinic in the Dufferin area, Dufferin and Queen area. Um, she would uh, often say that your greatest judge is your client. Your client is your greatest judge. You know, you can have a loser case, not be successful, but your client can come back and actually thank you. So ultimately, it's it's all about what your client thinks about you. So to qualify uh, my my response on a professional level, I would say that I do care what my clients think, because you know ultimately they are my in essence they are my greatest judges, and they do instruct me. I mean, it's a, a form of relationship. Exactly. You know, what What happens, though, if you see, quote, the process and the outcome a certain way and the client sees it another way and they're satisfied with that, yet you have the sense that, hey, could have gone, should have gone another way. 
How do you try to balance that out for yourself? Well, I think the lawyer's role, as I was saying, lay the options out there and ensure that the client understands at each stage. So the way I run my practice, I usually have um, uh, a very detailed initial consultation. We identify what the client's goals are, what does success look for for this particular client. And through this process, you know, you inform the client and they make an informed decision as to whether or not they want to proceed. And ultimately, if they're successful, you know, uh, they would be grateful. And if they are not, the lawyer has to ensure that the client knows the risks. So from a family law perspective, the other issue that comes into play, Greg, is there are cost consequences. So it's really important from an early stage that the client understands if they've got a bad case or, you know, bad... Well, when you talk costs, what are you talking about? Well, the the rule in family law, the norm, rather, is the successful party is able to claim costs against the unsuccessful party. So there's a financial penalty of exactly. some form. So in addition, the cli- in addition to the client retaining the, the actual solicitor, there's always a risk that if they're not successful, if they don't behave in what the court deems a reasonable manner, they are at risk of paying costs to the other side. Right. So... Some people, though, don't want to hear all that stuff. They just say, hey, I've got a problem. Do you, you know what to do. Take it. Go with it. How, well, do you, how do you deal with a client who just doesn't necessarily want to take ownership of their circumstance, which a lot of times people blame the other side? Well, I would like to think that most of my clients are reasonable, and it's about respecting their boundaries and making sure that the client is informed. Like I, I always stress this to uh the law students that I talk to that, you know, ultimately the lawyer's role, and I'll say this a million times, is to advise. And that's how the lawyer protects himself. That's how the lawyer protects his client. So, again, right from the get-go, the lawyer has to lay out the cards. The client has to understand. So in uh, many cases, I'll have clients come in and uh, I've got a family law situation. I want to take my former spouse to court. I want to claim spousal support, child support, or whatever it is. And, you know, we discuss it. What are the merits of doing this? Is it going to happen? Ultimately, once the client has been informed of all these options, they're able to make an informed decision. And I usually get my instructions in writing. So I'll have directions from the client saying, I had this conversation with my lawyer and I was informed that, you know, this might not necessarily be the best course of action. I might not be successful and there's, you know, the cost risk. And regardless, notwithstanding that, I've instructed my lawyer to proceed. So once you have all these uh, things documented and you have regular communication with your clients, then you're able to protect your client because, you know, you know that for a fact they understand uh, as they go along and instruct you. Or it's clear and it's transparent in terms mm-hmm. of what was discussed and what was decided upon in terms of that and how to proceed. Because, you know, the worst thing is that uh, you get into a he said, she said type of exactly. situation, which is... When people have oral or verbal conversations, they don't document it in some way, in a substantive way, like with on paper. Exactly. And then afterwards, they come back and someone says, you know, I thought you were going to do this. Yeah. You know, people make assumptions a, a lot. Exactly. It happens in our exactly. profession too. And I think it also boils down to just general communication. And I think it's incumbent on the lawyer being the legal professional to take steps to ensure that the client does understand because it would be quite unfortunate. And we see this quite a bit. You know, I've had situations where clients go to family court, sign final agreements and come back and say, by the way, my lawyer failed to explain 
this aspect of the agreement. Can we take this back to court and try and set this, si- this agreement aside? So this is something that does come up, and it's quite unfortunate when it does. But in most cases, most capable lawyers that I've dealt with would have, you know, had at least something in writing you'd think. Then you present it to the client. I think you signed this. It appears that you were aware when you signed it. Is this a case where the client is getting cold feet? Yeah, or, you know, we... We deal with people who uh, constantly go through changes in life. Exactly. And when they're feeling a certain way, they make certain decisions in that moment. When they, next day, they may feel a different way and they make different decisions relative to what, well, you told me that or I said this to you, but no, it's this now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a fluctuation in there or a roller coaster ride that we can go with people yep. all the time. Yep. Yep. So that can be a challenge. Um, so how do you organize your legal approach with each of your clients? Well, as I was saying uh, initially, I my approach to the practice of law generally is I, I adopt this collaborative approach to, to lawyering. So um, ultimately what this entails is uh, collaborative lawyer, lawyering is a fancy um, phrase for a partnership with my clients. So the client comes in with the legal problems. Right, we have a very detailed initial consultation. Mm-hmm. I meet with the client. We identify what the issues are. What does the law say about that? What are the chances of success? We lay everything on um, for the client to understand. And I usually have a detailed memo summarizing our discussions and what the options are available to the client. And another important aspect that we do is we set goals. Right, mm-hmm. so. The client comes in and says, I've, you know, I've, I, I have situations at times where I have um, a father who comes in and says, hey, I need you to, uh, to represent me in my family law case. I want to get access to my two-month-old baby, mm-hmm. right? And he doesn't have any experience with children. So in that case, you know, as a lawyer, I would say if there, if there are concerns that I would anticipate the mother would raise, I would bring them up to my client. My client should not hear from the other side what, you know, the problems are going to be. They usually, unless if they've already been served with documents, mm-hmm. but in most cases, your lawyer should see this before it happens, right? And granted, you know, I, I'm not saying that things don't happen because we're dealing with people, and scenarios arise that are not initially uh, expected. Ex- expected, exactly. So ultimately, in that case, you know, I, I talk to my client and say, "Hey, Mr. Joe or Mr. X, whatever the name is, you know, we're not going to be successful right now." So, as part of collaborative lawyering, the question becomes. What should we do to ensure that, you know, we address those concerns, that we're actually successful in the future? So I'll turn to my client and say, hey, Mr. Joe, why don't you consider doing a parenting course? Mm-hmm. Right. So I've had situations where before we even go to uh, court to file an application for access, I tell my client, I think you should take a parenting course. And there are a lot of parenting courses available for young parents or people who don't have experience with children. So when they're going to court, we know that what the other side is going to say. And, you know, now you're coming and saying, hey, listen, you know, whilst I don't necessarily have a relationship with this child, I have taken steps to educate myself about caring for children. So ultimately, I think, you know, to, to go back to your question, my approach for each client, family law allows me to have this collaborative approach with my with my clients, and it's a partnership, and we're able to address uh, the weaknesses in the case and proactively as opposed to once we're at a trial. Do you have a different legal approach with regard to family relative to immigration? Is it a different pathway? Well, the principles are the same. 
to the extent that even with my immigration clients, um, I would tell them, you know, someone comes to my office and says, Dumo, I've been living in Canada uh, illegally, and it does happen. I want to apply for permanent residency under the Humanitarian and Compassionate Application. In that case, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, can we get letters from the community? Can you talk to your rabbi, your imam, you know, your pastor? Can you talk to them? Can, can all these people come forward and support you with letters of reference? And, you know, once the client, and again, it's this collaborative process, you know, maybe you should be volunteering some of your time, you know. Maybe we're going to be in a stronger position next time. So by working with your lawyer, we're able to address those issues. And just to give you a, a different um, uh, scenario, say, for example, if it's civil litigation, you know, so-and-so is suing so-and-so. In most cases, I would think that in that case, you have a situation where, you know, the lawyer, the civ- these, uh, the, the personal injury lawyer or the civil litigator is going to ask the client, you know, what happened? Were you injured? Mm-hmm. And if the person wasn't injured, you know, even if you want to do collaborative lawyering, it's not available. The, sup- the, the facts don't support the relief that is sought. So family law, immigration law, as a result, at least from a family law perspective, we're dealing with the best interests of the child. The best interests of the child can change, but it, you know, ultimately it's that child's best interest. Yeah, and basically to have, ideally, both parents exactly. actively involved in some form. You know, I wanted to ask you, too, with regard to um, how, how do your views of your clients' issues impact the manner that you have in providing legal representation? Well, from my perspective, you know, my rule of thumb is that if I don't believe in a particular cause, I probably won't take the client. When you say cause, cause of what? So, you know, if I have a client who comes into my office and, you know, I form the opinion that they're simply being unreasonable, or they're using the, the court process in bad faith to basically punish the other side, then I probably won't take that client on. And, you know, I go back to my original position, lawyers as advisors. You know, once I assess a, a, a case and I talk to my client and I form that opinion, it's all about effective representation to that client. So ultimately, you know, once I form that opinion that this individual is, you know, acting in bad faith, and I, ne- I don't necessarily believe in what they're asking me to do, mm-hmm. then I won't take that case. So there's decision-making on your part, too, exactly. with regard to exactly. you know, a certain attitude and approach that a client will have? That's correct. So lawyers are in Ontario and, you know, across Canada. So in the case of Ontario, lawyers are bound by the rules of professional conduct in addition to all these other legislations. Um, and the rules of professional conduct, at least from the lawyer's perspective, uh, require that the lawyer not act in bad faith, not assist a client in basically abusing the uh, the court processes. So if I feel that you know this is what we're getting into at this stage, and you know I probably want to be taking that client. And that's where you define or distinguish from you know um, advising advising and advocating because you you don't take any case and for whatever reason you distinguish whether this is you know in the best interests of the person. Of the system, it's a combination of a number of factors. That's correct. And, and so that we're on the same page, Greg. You know, I I was sure to to indicate that you know it's in cases where I don't believe in the cause, usually because the client is acting in bad faith, right? I'm not saying that in cases where you know I also have cases where people come into the 
into the office and they don't have the best uh, case, the, be- the best fact scenario. So they want custody, but they've been out of the child's life for so long. I do believe that everyone deserves representation. And in such cases, I'll probably represent the person, but they'll make an informed decision. I'll tell them, hey, you know what, I don't think you're going to get the custody. But once the client tells me that, you know, I, I still want to proceed, I understand that, I still want to proceed, I, I, I strongly believe that everyone deserves uh, fair legal representation. Right, and what I'm hearing from what you just said is that you give a reality check. Yep. You know, you lay it out there in a very transparent way so that people have all the information, quote the facts, if you want to call it that, and they can make it a different decision from what they were so they're more informed educated and then from having that added capacity they're better connected to the decisions that they're working with you to navigate through that's correct that's correct do you find though is there any difference in terms of uh, gender with regard to the people that you represent well from a gender perspective i would say that you know as a family lawyer you deal with both sides of the coin Right, so so you represent applicants and you also represent respondents. Exactly, and I'll represent at times I have fathers who come to my office and they want to basically initiate the court proceedings, and at times I have you know the mothers who, who come to the court and they want to initiate the court proceedings. So it's a judgment call that has to be made by the lawyer at each stage, and I usually try and work with the other side if it's assuming that that's even possible write a letter off to the other side. This is what we're thinking of doing. Is there any way we can actually resolve this without going to court? Because going to court is quite expensive. And once it's clear that we can't do that, then there's only one route available. Expensive, yes. It's time-consuming. Mm-hmm. People a lot of times come into the court, they they make an application, and they think that they'll walk out that day with a uh, order, exactly. yeah. which is not a reality. It takes months. And it all depends, too, because it depends how that person is with regard to their decision-making, their attitude. Mm-hmm. The other side is, too. Exactly. And those are unknowns. Mm-hmm. And people don't know until the moment yeah. that they actually experience something. And I always tell my clients, you know, right from the get-go, these cases, you, you mentioned that they take months. At times, they take years, mm-hmm. you know, because you're dealing with a case where, as you were saying, there are all these factors that have to be taken into account. And ultimately, when a case is ready for a trial and no one is able to settle the case, you're also looking at uh, the availability of everyone for this particular trial. Yeah, right? So I've had situations where, yeah. you know, the trial can't be had until sometime next year. So now we're in a couple of years down the line, you've spent so much money and, you know, you're probably going to get to your trial a year from now. And it impacts people's relationships. It impacts themselves mm-hmm. with those around them. So if they've gotten into a new relationship with a new partner, though they're dealing with a, a matter of a child from another relationship, mm-hmm. that's going to factor in too. And um, the new partner's decisions are going to impact that new that relationship with yep. regard to the child. Exactly. So there's so many unknowns and variables. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. And I, I would find it uh, challenging to give somebody a concrete type of pathway. And I think, uh, you know, as I was saying initially, the lawyer really has to do a good um, initial intake consultation, lay the cards out. The client, usually when my clients leave my office after the initial uh, consultation, they they should have all this information. We're going to family court. 
you know, we're going to serve them with these applications, assuming that, you know, we're not able to work it out, they will have 30 days to respond. That's already one month. And, you know, by the time we get to the court, to the, uh, in front of the judge, you're looking at a couple of months down the line. So that's certainly something that people have to weigh in before making a decision whether or not going to court is appropriate. Is there any way that you've found or you've uh, experienced that how people identify themselves in terms of their gender and how they make decisions navigating the system, the family court system? Well, I don't want to put people in boxes because it's, you know, it's it's never straightforward. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, yes, at the same time, we're human beings and we do make observations and we make sometimes assumptions. Well, fair enough. And look, you know, I understand you as a lawyer. You don't want to be... <laughs> we're having a conversation, so. Well, I was getting to, yeah, fair enough. So, look, Greg, ultimately, you know, the lawyer's role, as I was saying, you know, set out the, the framework, put the cards on the table, the client makes a decision. But what I will note is that I, you know, from my experience as a lawyer, I've had situations where, and it's usually my my male clients, so I'll have um, the the former spouse, the male client, coming into my office and, you know, asking me, you know, I want to get a divorce and, you know, I just want to move on. And through this consultation, we're able to find out, you know, what's your income. At times, these people are not even employed and they're relying on their spouse to basically support them. But they are not comfortable seeking, you know, spousal support from their former spouse. And this is a decision that uh, they have made. I'm not sure why, but that's, you know, um, they come in. How many parents come into the system too and... They're just looking for custody, and they don't ask for child support. Exactly, exactly. And also from, a, I guess I was coming from, uh, I was addressing this topic from the spousal support network. So when I have male clients who come in and say, you know what, I'm not going to seek spousal support, even though I've been rely, relying on this person for the last, you know, we've been married, I've been relying right. on this person for so long, I don't think it would be appropriate. And wh- why do you think or... What's the backstory that, of why that might be? You know, I've never been able to understand that, but I can just make assumptions and I can assume that, you know, I, I would think that it has to do with, you know, the, the societal gen, people's uh, societal gender understanding of the gender roles. Traditional roles. Exactly. Right? So this understanding, even though it's non-existent to an extent today, you know, to a greater extent rather, you know, people say, or my clients would think, you know what, I'm the, I'm the male, I'm the man, I'm supposed to go out there, provide for my family, and there's this um, assumption yeah. that you know, it doesn't even apply today. It may be also a cultural norm. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you don't want to get, you've been, you've been raised a certain way with certain thinking and uh, attitude, and that's the way you practice life or live life, and then you make decisions based on that kind of mindset. Yeah. And ultimately, as I was saying, you know, it comes down to the lawyer. So, you know, once my client comes in and says, and I, I appreciate where they are coming from, I understand that, you know, this might not necessarily be the, the most popular thing to do. It's my job as a lawyer to, to put it on the table. You know, you are entitled to this. You are entitled to that. Because what happens is, you know, once this is not raised with them, you know, there's always that possibility that they come back down the line and say, my lawyer never advised me that I was entitled to all these things. Yeah, so you rather lay it all out on the table, as they'll say, yep. and uh, people have the opportunity to decide mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as long as they feel that they've been informed. You know, there's other factors about decision-making. We talk about mental health. We talk about substance abuse. We talk about violence and power. That contributes to how people also make decisions. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 
So that might be some of the lived experiences of the people you're going through. So they may not always be, even though you informed them, they still may decide to make different decisions than what you ideally would, you know, advise them on. Yeah. So two aspects to that. So the first thing is, you know, in addition to to laying the cards out, it's really important that the client uh, understands what's being said and makes an informed decision. So if you have a situation where a client is a result of their mental health issues and or uh, substance abuse issues is not able to understand what the lawyer is saying, there are other courses that are available. So usually if, if there are mental health issues, the client can't instruct the lawyer. So usually you're, you're looking at getting the public guardian involved to advocate for this person. And how would they be connected or collaborate with you as a counsel for a particular person? Well, they do... In some cases, they, you know, they do have lawyers available to advocate for these people. And so I'll make a, a, a referral to the public guardian office and just write a letter to them. And the client would basically go there. And if they qualify, they have, they have their own intake process. If they qualify, they'll be able to advocate for this person. And usually in child protection cases, if this becomes an issue and the judge becomes aware of it, they actually order the public guardian to represent the affected individual. So how can also the other dimension for the child, the Office of the Children's Lawyer, how does that work in collaboration with you trying to advocate for, at that point, and advise and advocate for your client? And then you have an independent third body or other body that's also influential in terms of how the ultimate outcome goes. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, the the office of the children's lawyer basically advocates for the for the children, and uh, they assist the court by basically expressing and providing the views and preferences of the child as expressed by that child. So in most cases, when I deal with parents, you know, it's really important that they understand what the role of the OCL is, office of the children's lawyer. And uh, in many cases, you know, that distinction is lost, especially when I'm dealing with people who are unrepresented and they think that the OCL is there to, you know, represent them. So independent of what the client's views are about what should happen in a particular case, the client has to understand what the OCL's position is and how they can address those uh, the concerns that the OCL raises at a particular stage to uh, ensure that the, their children's best interests are met. So if you're hired, you're advising and advocating for a client. And the other side, though, is self-represented. How do you navigate that kind of scenario? Whenever I deal with an unrepresented person, um, I, I ensure that everything is done in writing. And because the other client is their own counsel. Exactly. So they have to. you have, are required to have direct conversation with them. That's correct. My, my general rule of thumb is, you know, I ensure that everything is in writing. And I avoid... I avoid uh, telephone communications with them, especially if it's a contentious case, especially when, you know, when you have a case where there's been domestic violence in the past. In those cases, I would ensure that, you know, I write, I send a letter out to them, tell them what's going on, and, you know, say for instance, I've issued an application against them, I would serve them like any other uh, lawyer I would serve, and, you know, ultimately, whether or not the person has a lawyer, they're expected to conduct themselves in an appropriate manner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on child protection matters, though, so the societies would be the applicant and the parents would be the uh, respondents. respondents. And many times, 
Well, each parent is expected to have their own independent counsel. That's correct. So what happens, in, you know, in a relationship? It's not always where the parents are together anymore. There's the the relationship has ended for whatever amount of time, and you're advocating a certain path for your parent, and the other parent is in a different kind of mindset. Okay. Well, ultimately, it's I'll still advocate for my client, and in most cases, the other side would also advocate for themselves. So it's quite common that you'd have a situation where you've got two perspectives. You know, Dad is saying, I think that children should live with so-and-so, and Mom is saying that children should live with myself, and I'm presenting this plan to basically address the society's concerns. And it's quite common. So I think the first question would become, from the court's perspective, who was caring for these children before the court became involved, right? So if mm-hmm. it's a situation where the mother had uh, was providing, was the primary caregiver for the children, um, then the court would look at their plan first. You know, is this an appropriate plan? Does it address the society's concerns? And then if that plan is not appropriate, then they turn over to, to dad. And uh, actually, uh, Duma, we have a caller, and uh, he wants to ask a question of you. Go ahead. Good evening. Um, thank you. I was just curious, I mean, in listening to all the different uh, challenges, I'm wondering, um, it's, it, do you find that um, the sheer amount of time that it takes to go through the court system, even the family court, is would you consider that the greatest challenge for many of your clients? S- sorry, can you rephrase that? I didn't catch that. I'm sorry. Um, would you consider the sheer amount of time that it takes? Because I mean, you you talked okay. about it, you know, a month to, to, to go to one pro- uh, process and then another month again. Yep. Do is would you find that the amount of time that it takes to go through the court process to be one of the greatest challenges for your clients? Because many of us don't know the system mm-hmm. until we're in the midst of it. Exactly. And I, I would add to this: How do you keep your client connected to the process that they're going through, knowing that it could be an indefinite kind of journey? Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's a, a great idea because it's too. You suddenly it, it's like hurry up and wait. You know, you, you, all the stress and tension. The decisions to make and then tick, 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 tick for weeks at a time. Okay. So I think the, the timing issue is certainly, it's, I'm not sure if I'll say it's the, the greatest issue, but it's certainly a factor that comes into play. And uh, tied into the timing issue is also the cost issue, right? So if you have a lawyer on retainer for two years, how much is that going to cost? Right. So there are things that clients can do from the get-go to try and address the, the delays, Right. So on the one hand, when a client comes into my office, especially if it's just a custody access situation and there's also child or spousal support, you're telling your client, hey, listen, I think you should, you know, if you haven't filed your income taxes, you should file all of them. Right. Get the last three years, get all your disclosures ready. Mm-hmm. Right. Provide all disclosures in, in, a, in a timely fashion. And you might be able to address those situations. And it's also up to the lawyer to try and push the process along within reason. Right. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if the other side is not retained counsel, uh, uh, something that usually um, upsets, if I can put it like that, my clients is that, you know, you'd have a person who's been served. They've got 30 days to respond and they've basically done nothing. And it's 60 days. And they ask me to note them in default. And we try and do that. And at times you're not successful because the judges say, hey, listen, they should be given another chance, especially if these people show up to court and they come to court and say, hey, I'm trying to find a lawyer. I can't find a lawyer. So I think in those cases, it's it's incumbent upon the lawyer to have those conversations with the client and also to talk to, uh, to advocate for their client before the judges, you know, put put deadlines. 
Mm. Fair enough, you've not been able to retain a, a lawyer, but it's important. I've got a, a client here who's retained me who's trying to move their case along. So is this a case where we give them another extension for 30 days, ask the judge to basically, you know, note them in default in the future? Now, once all those boxes have been checked off, so to say, you know, it's quite unfortunate, but the reality is there are a lot of families that are involved in the family law process and there's the resource issue. So the timing suddenly comes into account and families and parents have to consider that before making a decision as to whether or not they're going to go into the family courts. In, in addition, I think the caller is also mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. say, on a practical level with those substantive uh, responsibilities people have for disclosure. How do you keep people connected, mindset-wise, attitude? Because over time, they can get discouraged with the whole stress of it. Exactly. So you have to be, as a practitioner, somewhat very compassionate in some way, yet reality-based. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, from the get-go, the conversation that the client should be having with the lawyer is setting the goals. What are the client's expectations? You know, with all my clients, I'll have, you know, what does success look for you, Mr. Joe, Mr. X, right? Success success looks like X and Y. How soon can I get some of that relief for you, right? And as the process goes along, you know, you're telling your client at this stage we're able to bring motions for temporary relief and get you in front of a judge. It's not a final decision, but I can try and get you temporary uh, relief. So, it's again, it boils down to the relationship between the the client and the lawyer. So the client has to, or rather, the lawyer has to ensure that the client appreciates at each stage what's going on. And you know, there are some things that you can't avoid. The fact that you know some people might become discouraged. But if your client and the lawyer are proactive throughout the whole proceedings, I would like to think that it goes by uh, faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it keeps them engaged. That's great. Thank you very much. No problem. Take care. Thank you for calling. Thanks for calling in. Indeed. You have a good night. Thank you too. Bye. You know, we've only got a few moments left. Yep. And what message would you like the listener to better know about our conversation and understand from it? I think what's quite important, if you, you, know, if you don't already know this, and um, you are someone and you do matter, your experiences as a male, female, transgender, or gender nonconforming individual, you know, whatever it is, these are not yokes to, to bind you down, but the law is certainly evolved to accommodate and protect everyone. And as clients, you have to demand more from your legal representatives, you know, ensure that you ask, ask questions. And uh, it is also, on the other hand, incumbent on lawyers to recognize their roles in advocating for their clients. Uh, that these gender differences exist and to address these issues with their clients as they go along. So you being a professional, of course, Mm -hmm. you're also a human being. How are you affected by the work you do and the people with whom you engage in their struggles? Well, you know, this is something that I initially struggled with. Initially when I got called to the bar, this was sometime uh, 2011 or so. That's how long I've been trying. And... You know, once you have someone who's coming to your office and saying, my children have been apprehended. And, you know, I actually had a, a person who retained me who had lost a lot of children uh, through Crown Worship Orders, children being ad- um, adopted away from them. So they came to my office and, you know, we had this conversation. And I told them, you know, it's, you know, I understand that you're in this situation, but it's what you do now 
and it might have affected you are, but I think one of the most rewarding experiences as a lawyer is when finally this mother who, you know, in that woman's case, you know, had lost several other children, finally managed to get their child back from the society. It's one of the most rewarding experiences uh, that a lawyer can have. Just to ask then as a closing, what suggestions can you make for people when they start out a court process that is based on an adversarial mindset and approach? How can people better prepare themselves? Well, there's, uh, there are numerous uh, tips that I can give, but out of uh, expediency, uh, I think, you know, the main key things that I'll just flush out, Greg, would include, firstly, they have to understand the legal process, right? And when I say understand the legal process, you know, I talked about lawyers advising, putting the cards on the table. And so understanding the, the legal process can be done in different ways. You hire a lawyer. And as I said, I'm a firm believer of collaborative lawyering, being a partner with your clients to help them solve their problems. So you want to find a lawyer who you're comfortable working with. And if you cannot retain a lawyer, most there are legal uh, free legal services available. If you go to most of these courthouses, they have the duty council offices. They might be able to make summary uh, advice. And there are also legal clinics that are available that may be able to assist you. And, you know, through talking with your lawyer, even if you don't have a lawyer, set goals, set goals, expectations, and be realistic, you know. So from the get-go, I talk with my clients and I say, what does success look for us? What does it look like at the end? You, you know, you can pay me $50,000, but if you walk away, we have to have that conversation. What's a win, Right. And when only when you set goals are you able to move the case along. And finally, going to court should be the last resource, uh, recourse. Always consider alternative dispute resolution. So consider mediation, writing a letter to the other side, a quick phone call, you know, and trying to resolve it before going to court. Thanks for the plug for mediation. Appreciate it. <laughs> we help support each other. It's a collaboration anyways. There you go, Greg. you got to make the maximum for the opportunities for the, pu- the public, the client, etc. Yeah. Thanks very much, Duma, for coming out tonight and uh, helping inform us and educating us. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I enjoyed it. So we'll uh, look forward. Maybe you'll have a return visit. Sounds you've, good. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA 1610M, Forces Latinas.